0: You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. 2nd of February, 1645. Through the wind's turmoil, battering snow, a deer lies dead in a corrie, ribs gape to the eagle's beak. No fleetness of limb could carry it beyond this cold. Flesh freezes, a man would hope for burial. We lie together and let snow cover us, our death's rehearsal. Who would dare sleep? At dawn the wind shifts our west, by noon the burns are trickling, with the snow feet thick. We plunge to our chests through the crusted drifts. Shepherds guide us. We begin to wonder. Gaunt, with cold and hunger, we spend this night on the braes of Ben Nevers. As the Peabroch of Donald II rouses to battle, the sons of Ranald distill out of darkness, flow down the slopes. Campbell clansmen catch the grain's banner flaunting across the dawn. What black art brought the devil through the snow? Surf roar of battle cries, thunder of foot and hoof, like overwhelming tide. Men matched in suffering and in valour. At what moment does the spirit break? The will know its triumph. They harvest the bog myrtles, swathes or cut low, headless a corpse twitches, its impatient fingers scrabble at the earth. A McLean's sword thrust through a throat. Flood at the mouth. They slaughter along the shore of Loch Eel. Through clenched teeth last breaths hiss. Failing eyes see the troubled wake of Campbell's galley. Their chief absconding on black wings. Fifteen hundred souls and the air thick with their passage. Gull flocks gather, stab, the stretched sea eagle folds and tears and Johnny Graham stood witness, his face ice scorched. Lips blue, boy, in a man's battle. Hello, and welcome to a new episode in the Scottish
1: Poetry Library's podcast series. My name is Colin Waters, and I'll be your host for the next thirty minutes. Today's guest is Henry Marsh. Henry Marsh, the Scottish poet, not Henry Marsh, the neurosurgeon turned author, in case you were wondering. Our Henry is known for a number of poetic sequences that dive deep into Scotland's history, with Mary Queen of Scots, John Knox and the Covenanters recurring characters. Marsh was born in Brotty Ferry in Dundee in 1944 and lives in Midlothian. He taught English during his working life but is retired from teaching now. He began writing in 2000 when a poet friend, the Gaelic bard Donald MacDonald, died. Marsh's first collection of poems, A First Sighting, was published in 2005, with seven following that debut. Marsh also wrote a sequence of poems about the natural world that were adapted for an unaccompanied choir with the piece broadcast on Radio 3 by the BBC Singers. His latest collection, Under Winter Skies, is published by Berlin in December and it examines the religious wars of 17th century Scotland through the experience of the Marquis of Montrose, a fascinating character. As we'll hear, Montrose was a great military leader and a poet who at one point had all of Europe at his feet but gambled it all on a grand gesture which didn't succeed and led to his death. I spoke to Henry in October about his new collection. So uh, the new collection, under winter Skies, it's um, subtitled uh, The Last Journey of the Great Marquis. The central character is James Graham. Mm. The first Marquis of Montrose?
0: No, no, the, the Montrose family had been going for Well, he becomes the first Marquis. of Charles I, that's right. There were earls and, and so on. There's an aristocracy yes. going right back. <laughs> Goodness knows when. The, the,
1: the actual uh, minutiae of
0: uh, our, that's our that's noble families <laughs> is somewhat lost on me at times. But anyway, James Graham is the central James character. James Graham is the central character. Who was he? Why is he of interest historically? James Graham... His exploits as a general were written up and published continental-wide. He developed a European reputation. At one stage, when he went into exile, he could have become a Marshal of France. Such was his reputation. Such was his his reputation. reputation. He was also... Well, he became a Marshal of the Holy Roman Empire, and I think he was also a Marshal of Denmark or something. (laughs) But to use that abused word, I think he was charismatic. He was compelling. He had—he was quite a slightly built fellow, mm. but his stamina was
1: extraordinary. To go
0: back a bit, yeah. he so he's Scottish. He's one
1: of us. Yeah. And what was the time frame for? This? He was born. In? I mean,
0: we're talking about—he died in the sixteen fifty. In 1650. Yeah, he, I think he was born... What, he, was, 16, he was 37 or something. 1614, something, something like that or he was born. Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's the period in which he lives. And his life basically uh, takes in, although he died young at the age of 37, mm-hmm. it takes in the span of what used to be known as the English Civil War, until people realised of course it affected <laughs> rather more than England. I
0: mean, that was one of the things that intrigued me and made me want to write about this, the English Civil War. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was the War of the Three Kingdoms. But roses story is complicated insofar as he signed the national covenant before before we get to
1: that yeah. can we just uh, so he was a he was the son of a very noble family yes that's right and uh, what was he like as a young man he was quite well educated wasn't
0: he yes he went to St Andrews for example um, there he, he met Argyle, who was to become his great enemy yeah. well actually Argyle had graduated before he did but you know there was it was an amazing place he didn't I suspect didn't do a great deal of work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he read what you might call the classic romances of, of warfare and so on. Um, and so he was well versed in that sort of thing. I and I think his head was stuffed with the idea of personal glory and so on and so forth. That's the impression you get from his university <laughs> career.
1: One of the things that was very appealing to me as a sort of modern-day reader reading your collection and learning about uh, Errol James Graham is that uh, he was a reader, as we've established, but he also wrote
0: poetry. I would describe his poetry as highly accomplished. Oh, really? So you've read it? Oh, yes. It's highly accomplished. There's not all that much of it. But, for example, he wrote love poems. But I want to ask, where was the woman that he loved Mm. in the love poems? because they were very sort of 17th century formulaic, mm. at least I think so. Um, but they were extremely accomplished in terms of their verse, and so on and so forth. So he was a cavalier poet, basically speaking, in the end, in spite of the fact he signed the National Covenant. Um, and <laughs> the reason, well, first of all, he, he fought the, the, first, the first time, Bishop's War, which was against Charles I and so on and so forth, Second Bishop's War, and then he changed horses. Hmm. That's very interesting. He changed horses. And why did he change? Well, he became deeply suspicious of what the Covenanters, what the Presbyterian fanatics were doing. Before before we get to that, because uh, for people outside Scotland,
1: or yeah. people inside Scotland yeah. Yeah. as well, we should maybe explain what the Covenanters was, how it arose, and what its connection to the, the, the developing yeah. situation of yeah. the, the, the monarchy down south was. Well
0: as I say Montrose signed the National Covenant which was in a way a sort of declaration of independence from the Church of England and and the the prayer book that Charles I attempted to sort of impose upon upon the Scots, which you know announced a bit produce produced fury and mm. so on. And it wasn't only that but it was again bishops, so bishops were anathema. Mm. So there was a, almost a democratic, well, almost. in a perverse sort of way. Yes, absolutely. And Montrose was remarkable himself in so far as he believed in freedom of worship. For goodness' sake, in the middle of the seventeenth century. Mm. That is in uh, quite a time, worship. really. Yes, absolutely. And that, of course, put him daggers drawn with the Covenanters. Um, and so, well, of course, Charles I. But anyway, he became one of Charles I's torture supporters. Mm. And what he did in support of Charles was basically to begin a Gallic civil war in Scotland um, against the Campbells who were Protestant. And the idea was that that would take the pressure off Charles I being beleaguered in England, as so it were. And he, that's why he fought seems, uh, won a series of brilliant sort of victories. The greatest one was Kilcythe, where Montrose ended up really master of Scotland, but when he tried to come into the lowlands, well, his highland troops fought in a time-honoured manner. They would win a victory and then disappear off with their loot. Mm. It wasn't desertion in the modern sense, it was just what they did. So that's how they made their living, as it were. They, and they disappeared off into the hills, and not only that, but Montrose had changed sides. He supported Charles I, and when all was said and done, his army consisted of a load of railing papists. So wrong religion, as it were, and that was anathema in the Lawrence, because the papists and the covenanters were daggers drawn, and not only that, but basically speaking, Highlanders and Lowlanders were at strong well mm. because of the history of blackmail, marauding and all this kind of stuff that was going, because of the way that some of the Highland clans made their living. Mm. Uh, so that meant to say when he came into the Lowlands then, he could not press the, the victory politically because he suddenly found himself you know, with a depleted army. And then he was defeated at Philip Hall or Philip Hoch, depending upon how pronounce <laughs> Your pronunciation, yes. um, and, um, you pronounce know, it, and that was really the beginning of the end. Um, he, there was a, it was a, an upchain defeat, um, and he then was sent into exile by Charles I, not because Charles I disapproved, as it were, in any sort of way, but to get Montrose into safety, as it were. Uh,
1: so before we get going further because yeah. I'd like to hear another poem all right to summarize I guess stop me if I if I'm wrong so Graham yeah. uh, from a very noble Scottish family uh, well educated at St. Andrews uh, in his early adulthood becomes involved in this great national convulsion yeah. based on religion, the Scottish churches, the Scottish, uh, community um, of of followers and believers were upset when Charles I tried to impose the Common Book of Prayer mm-hmm. upon uh, Scottish uh, churches and services. It was felt this was almost going a bit too far in terms of uh, down south imposing their faith on was then a distinctive Scottish... Uh,
0: and of course, faith was an explosive matter. Yes, anyway, without you having to do anything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So when Tro's um, Graham comes to the fore as this great military leader, he uh, basically, as you say, uh, is initially against Charles I because he his abiding principle, which regardless of which side he was fighting on,
0: the, the animating spirit for him was freedom of religion and well wait a minute that was all part of it. The other thing was a strong monarchy under the control of
1: Parliament. Ah, so that that's where the sort of
0: proto-democratic spirit, the right, that, that Graham that's right, was animated. So it. your heart goes out to as <laughs> <way. laughs> a modern reader. Right? That's right, a modern yeah. reader. That's right. So freedom of religion and you know and. Uh, what you might call, roughly speaking, the democratic spirit. Although they would never, I Montrose mean, would never have countenanced the yeah. modern notion no, of a democratic. That'd be quite a. leap, wouldn't. That'd be quite a. But nevertheless, a parliament which was had the power to exercise some kind of control over the monarchy. Yeah. Um, and that was very forward-looking. Yes. That's right. He's a strangely attractive character. Um, given what is compelling. Character. Yes. He was captured um, uh, up to the Battle of Carbisdale. Well, he made his way into the hinterland, up up in that particular area, and he ended up in Ascent, mm. wounded. He'd been stray- straying across the, the mountains for a couple of days. I think he was at his last on his last legs, really. Um, except in April, and you know, blizzards and goodness, i you know, what a highland April's like. I think of, so, yes. Yeah, yeah so. that's right. Um, and he ended up um, in, the, in thinking he would get succour from a clown of Athens, in fact. It's probable that a cloud of Athens betrayed him and then he was um, bound and put in an old horse and carted back the way he had come back you know, towards Inverness and Keith and so on. Now, um, at Skibo Castle the 5th of May 1650 General Holborn had been given the task of escorting Montrose back for trial presumably well not quite trial that's not fair to call it a trial because it wasn't really a trial <laughs> anyway for well, what happens in Edinburgh eventually um, when he was condemned then anyway this, this happened on the way back at Sceboe Castle and it's actually a true incident Asson's wife had received him. MacLeod of Assent betrayed him. Bound hand and foot to an old garren, he's taken lumbering back through the hills towards Dornoch. Wounds throb, that wincing jaw. Fevered, he hovers in his mind's twilight. The escort arrives at Skibo Castle. They are met by the dowager Lady Grey. At table, General Holborn sits at the lady's right hand. She tacks her leg of mutton and sculpts her ring in love with it. He counts for his chair and she in her best imperial manner you'll nay sit at my right hand, my manny, when a marquess is at my table. The General on his dope in the gravy, his wig run is e'en. The graham, grave of a ghost, tucks his seat, we have bowed to my ladyship. Though I cock the glint of a smile. Losh me, laugh, the kitchen was in sicker roar. Hamish, Hamish says that, e'en on the laird's day, She I wore the breeks.
1: That's certainly um an amusing moment in what was actually a, a dark, sort of final phase Absolutely. of the life. Absolutely, right,
0: that's right. In, yeah, fifth of May. You see, although I call it under winter skies, that's a metaphor. Yes, that's his state of mind.
1: The winter had come for him. That's right, it was, his, it was his winter.
0: Yeah, although um, in
1: Scotland the uh, <laughs> <well, laughs> winter it can last day. <laughs> marks
0: to day. In March to September, some, uh, yes, that's but, right. But before
1: you got to that stage, so I guess in the story so far, if you're keeping up, dear listener. Can I explain what yes, the, please. the strategy was? Yes,
0: um, What I did was, I began with Montrose's <laughs> defeat at Culloden, mm-hmm. and then I took him back on this journey to Edinburgh, an execution. Mm-hmm. But interspersed in that journey are the memories of things like Inverlochy and so on, and his wife Magdalene. Um, yeah. So that's the way that I tackled I, it.
1: I thought it was quite uh, almost, uh, if I can be pretentious enough to put it this way, like a cubist portrait. You know, Ooh, you're yeah. seeing. Griev simultaneously, but from different angles. Different angles, that's right. Uh, And so you get, for example, there's a poem that's from the viewpoint of a soldier on the opposing side. Is it? Yes, that's right. And he obviously it's a, a hellish scene that he. Yes he encounters and thinks that uh, yeah. Graham must be a monster yeah. a sort of description.
0: Well, he was known as the Antichrist.
1: Yes, well, that was the word I was going to use, right. I thought I'd maybe misremembered it, because it seems What's a bit extreme.
0: Well, who was saying that? It was the Covenantist. Mm. One of the reasons why he revolted against the Covenantist was precisely because of the fanaticism. Mm. Yeah, this was a time of witch persecution and everything else. You know. a terrible time to be alive, if he were just a Tom, take it, Harry. Well, the the, inter- the interesting thing,
1: of course, is as a modern reader reading mm. these poems and reflecting again on mm. that period of history, mm. you don't have to make a huge leap of imagination. You just have to turn on a television and look exactly at, so look at the people who've been liberated from Raqqa and exactly. hear their testimony. Exactly so
0: and the conflicts of fanaticism and religious strife and all that kind of, exactly that was. That was partly in my mind when I was writing it. One of the reasons I wanted to try and tease it out. We've been there. Yes. Um, And you know, it doesn't behove us to be sort of somehow snooty and sort of thinking, oh well, you know, that's just the monsters at the other side of the sea and whatever. It's not like that people mm-hmm.
1: in a fiery country of which we know little, absolutely. that's not the case in Scotland well, absolutely, <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> you have still got to have enough systems alas, that's alas,
1: yeah. we still have those fault lines definitely, they oh, still yeah. exist culturally yeah, that's you know. right, absolutely and the history, although it's 400 years, 500 years since mm-hmm. then Graham feels a very contemporary character and the conflicts that he yeah. faced mm-hmm. feel very contemporary yeah, right. as well mm-hmm. So, as we were saying, I mean, it's an interesting structure, the actual story, as you say, is his last journey interspersed with people remembering him as well. But before he got to that, I mean, he had a sort of last hooray, didn't he, in which uh, he, as we've already said at the start of the podcast, he, after being defeated within Britain, uh, he
0: moved to the continent was it's going to be Charles sent him into exile. Yeah. Exile,
1: and he was in the court of the young Charles II.
0: Uh, well, yes. I mean, first of all, you know, he was sent. He went to Paris, um, and he couldn't stand it—the exile, queen, and all this kind of stuff. It, it was full of intrigue, and mm. it's not his world at all. He was a cut and dried man in many ways. And then uh, he ended up, yes, in the court of Charles II. Eventually. But, difficult to, to judge without looking at it much more closely, but Charles II seems to have been, shall we put it this way, inexperienced. He was 18 years old, and I think he was probably outthought by the Cavaliers. Um, at least I hope that's what the matter was.
1: Well, the alternative but is that he betrayed.
0: He betrayed it, I think that's absolutely right. So, I suppose, I came down on the end as the fact that he was betrayed, really. <laughs> And then he came back to Scotland and Montrose. He, he landed in. Um, he got a small army of mercenaries. to would gull, and as consequence of his being marshaled, of the Roman Empire, so. Um, and so he got a. He got a, a load of mercenaries, and two ammunition ships sank in a storm of Orkney. Mm. He had his his basic troops but Orkney's conscripts really, um, and he was on a hiding to nothing because. The theory was once Montrose had landed in Scotland he would have got all sorts of support.
1: Everyone would just rise instinctively to to his
0: cause. It was was the same as earlier, you know, nobody came, Mm -hmm. nobody came. And so he was just totally exposed. I flirt with the idea in a way that he had a sort of death wish in a sense, that he couldn't win a victory and then he would die fighting. Um, but basically, that's what happened, really.
1: Yeah, you've got that line, uh, perhaps a whispering secret in his soul demanded heroic failure, yeah. in which case he's a very Scottish character. <laughs> <laughs> we like our heroic failures, don't
0: we? Whether we aim for it or not is what we inevitably do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: But, I mean, his, his return is all the more remarkable because he didn't have to come back, and he... Uh, as you were saying, was offered many plum posts. Yes, that's and right. And there was also the rumor that after his wife died, Magdalene, mm. yes. <laughs> incredibly named Magdalene,
0: yes. Uh mm.
1: Princess Louise, which court yes. did she belong to? Is it uh, Austro-Hungarian? Her, mother,
0: her mother's court, which was the yeah, it would be the Holy Roman Empire, basically. As you were yeah. So, so would right. it be
1: possible to hear the poem? Is it from her point of view? Because I think that gives a sort nice sort of a counterpoint to the more martial. Um, exploits that he right i um, i read
0: the magdalen poem yeah you read that yeah sure because that puts it into kind of perspective so yes. I'll, I'll, we can look at the women as it were absolutely because they're ignored really yes very much magdalen Marchioness of montrose kinnaird autumn 1645 and then we were married so little we really knew of one another my mother arranged it, our neighbour from a mile away, the young man froze. We'd played as children. He lived for shooting, fishing, his horses. A handsome boy, so full of himself, not tall, but perfect in proportion. Wherever he went he was conscious somehow of completing the picture. I was flattered, beguiled. In the first month of marriage, after the starched rituals of courtship, we'd wander the parks of Kinnaird, share our dreams by the glassy river, watch the dipping swans exult in their freedom of the skies. He'd read me his poetry. But now I wonder where I was in his words. For I see in the well turned verse just another display of the peacock. The Burns, he'd hardly noticed. When he did, he'd bewitch them. I'd feel a pang of jealousy. Merely their mother, the healthy mare. Father says he betrayed the covenant. I've never fully understood the matter, but imagine Jamie's own bewitchment. That long, sad face of the king and Lancelot won by his Arthur. Or see it as his Rubicon. A Caesar he would be. And he has his vision. Church and state and monarchy and balanced order. But what price balance for a man who'll never compromise? No middle way, he'd say to me. No middle way. And so there were tensions. Did ever they come to words? I've heard tell in Glasgow they had a fair struci at a General Assembly, a rash and vainglorious young man. My father's wise, deeply considers, though no zealot, he's made his peace with the Covenant. The Graham, like the flash of a meteor. He's left me landless a pauper in my father's house, took Johnny to his death, so young, too young for blood, his father's son, another mine, and my Bonnie Jamie, still a child, held in plague-written Edinburgh Castle. Wide skies, woods on woods, the landscape featureless, this elegant confinement, a few years of a life, then it gone, I cultivate my flowers, my physic garden, the countess of Strathmore has passed me a recipe for syrup of Bugloss, it prevails, they say, against melancholy. think in modern terms she probably suffered chronic depression in the end
1: well she had good cause to absolutely Um, so as your poem touches on there he lost his oldest son in in battle
0: he was the boy at Inverlochie yeah um, and,
1: and he had another son who was locked up in, in, in Edinburgh, Edinburgh Castle. Castle, and then of course Montrose himself comes to a bad end, yes. uh, so that would be... She s- died before then. So yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He died in 1650? 1650, that's right. And yeah. he was killed in Edinburgh after that long journey back here.
0: Yeah, they wanted to make a real job of it, so they built a scaffold 30 feet high.
1: Wow. <laughs> they wanted just to be seen
0: wanted just to be seen, that's right. And uh, I don't know if you'd like me to read something about that. The Graham in the Myrns. 15th May 1650. We pass Stonehaven into the Myrns, the hawthorn in new leaf, larks and peasies up, wide skies. By the burnside, butterflies chase among the celandines. Two wee lasses are playing by the wayside. They throw handfuls of sun-dried leaves into the breeze, run shrieking after. They stop, stand, stare at the passing soldiers. Those eyes. Not only the child grows, by the beholder. Too late, I understand the loss. Green, so green, the parks are flowing under a warm wind. Between the muirs the North Sea dazzles behind the kirk of Inverbervie. My last spring, never so intense. Beyond failure the great simplicities cry out and the Merle's song like a wound, something settles in my soul. The time of black flags, Carbisdale, the incubus, has passed. May I remember this moment of the last
1: does. Just one last question before we wrap it up. In your previous collections, mm-hmm. A Voyage to Babylon looks again at the Covenanters, mm-hmm. The Hammer and Fire has poems about John Knox, Yeah. Gitman's Daughter has Mary Queenie Scott. Mm-hmm. Why are you so attracted to exploring Scottish history, and in particular Scottish history through very strong
0: characters? It's an accident. He <laughs> slipped and no, <laughs> accidentally no, got a few no, poems. No. There was a a, a composer who's a professor at um, uh, the Royal Academy, was commissioned by someone at Cambridge to set four of my newest poems Mm -hmm. for four-part choir. And he he happened to come from Follinghay. So we went to the first performance in Follinghay Church. And that afternoon I'd been to the castle, or the mound that remains of it. And I felt myself full of indignation. How dare they execute the Scottish Queen um, after some like eighteen years of confinement? And then, after the first performance, which is rather splendid, I must give you a copy of it sometime. Um, after the performance, someone from the Mary Stuart Society approached me and commissioned me to read. To, to do a poem about Mary, Queen of Scots. And that's what started me off. And I became more and more fascinated by my own ignorance. You know, it's appalling, a I had a kind of vague sort of folksy awareness of these things. But John Knox, for example, I mean, it's so interesting. He's such an interesting guy. He's not some kind of puppet caricature. Um, and so I became interested in that as well. You know, he's got his faults, but my goodness me, what a guy! And so that's what's attracted me to Scottish history, as my own ignorance really, um, and I'm just determined to do something about it. So I'm now I'm working. I'm trying to find a niche in the forty-five, but it's incredibly complicated, and I think I might have got something in um, young Lord Ogilvie, who was the son of the Earl of Ayr. Raised a forfarshire regiment, um, and he in fact brought the regiment off Collodon more or less intact. And there's a whole story there which I might let you read about in a couple of years' time yeah. <laughs> when, I've, when I've done it. Well, I look, I look forward to that. Well, it's as I say, it's, it's incredibly difficult because when you're writing about historical, at least when I'm writing about historical figures. You need a kind of niche, you need a sort of freedom mm. to develop the thing without being totally dictated by the actual events and all this kind of stuff. You need room Poetic license. for the imagination to work. And so I'm struggling at the moment. I am just overwhelmed by the kind of factual material. And then the other day, I just thought to myself, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start at the my path which comes from, well, basically, it's, it's uh, from uh, Glen Mick, which comes from snaking down into Glen Clover, where this guy, David Ogilvie, would have retreated, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and it's an area I know and love. And I started off with April and a and, and blizzard, and so on and so forth, so that's given me this kind of little niche. And that's often when I start, it's places, um, and nudicate the character and the place and things sort of follow from that
1: And that's it for another uh, edition of the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series It only remains for me to thank uh, Henry Marsh for coming in and talking to us about his new collection Under Winter Skies which uh, I'll remind you is published by Berlin Uh, And to thank Will Campbell, who does the music at the start and at the end of the show. And of course, to thank yourselves for listening. Now, if you want to know more about what the Scottish Poetry Library is up to between episodes of our podcast series, you can always check out our website. That can be found at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk And of course, we have uh, several social media platforms you can investigate what we're up to on. So we have Twitter. At By Leaves You Live is our Twitter handle. Uh, we're on Facebook as SPL Scotland, And I think that's also our handle on Instagram, where we post pictures of new books, new books that have come into the library to form our collection, old books, poems, pictures of poets. So, yes, that's us for another uh, month. We'll have another podcast out soon. And I hope you enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.
0: this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.